Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 8th, 2016, and this is episode 1762 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what day it is? Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, time for the Monster Show of the Week. This is where the expert counsel answers your questions. Remember to ask a question of an expert counsel member. What you need to do is send me an email. Send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and uh, put TSPC expert in the subject line. That will bring it to my attention for that particular need. It will go into a special folder and it will get extra attention above all other emails because I have to put these together for the counsel. Little note, this weekend would be a great time for more questions for the expert counsel. Some people I could use questions for, Michael and Sue LaPraise, who you will hear is the lead uh, lead story today. Uh, they're new to the council. They're not on the Meet the Experts page. I haven't added them yet, so I have a, a, a you know not a lot of questions for them. But they have uh, agreed to answer all your questions about homeschooling. It's something they're passionate about and been doing for a long time. I can always use more questions. It seems like for Tim Glantz, uh, that's someone I don't get as many questions for. Uh, Darby Simpson, who we'll hear from today, I could use questions for. Those are people that in particular I don't get maybe enough questions for. So please send them our way. And uh, remember, go to the Meet the Expert Council page, and you can see all the experts and their areas of expertise and get some questions in. Um, you will not be hearing from Brian Black for at least a month. Brian is in the middle of moving to a new house. He has asked for a temporary leave of absence, and I have granted him a temporary piker's uh, license where he can pike off for a month and see to getting his house moved. I'm just kidding. Brian's a good friend, and... Uh, He's an amazing guy, and moving while trying to run a business, as I know personally, is hard. So what are we going to talk about today? So, uh, like I said, lead off uh, expert council member today, Michael and Sue LaPraise, and they are going to talk about how much structure and what type of structure to provide in a homeschooling environment. Do you emulate the state's curriculum? Do you sort of do that? How, how do you actually set up a structure? for your homeschool environment. Uh, next, we're going to hear from the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. We're going to hear about trapping swarms. So this is swarm season, and that's one way to get a hold of bees without buying them. So Michael Jordan's going to tell us all about that. Uh, I talked yesterday about diesel trucks some more and some thoughts on not messing with them. Uh, we also heard from a, a caller who called in about how he did research for his trucks. Uh, Steve Harris heard that show yesterday. He's like, I got some stuff to add to this. And of course, Steve was a engineer for Chrysler for a long time. So he's pretty switched on with this. And he has some advice, not just that kind of backs up what I said, but if you're looking for an older diesel truck, how to find one, you might be shocked at where to find one. Um, hint, I live there. I live there. And it means no matter where you live, you still might want to be shopping Texas for a used diesel. Why the hell would you do that? Well, you'll find out today from Mr. Stephen Harris. Uh, next, you'll hear from John Pugliano today about, you know, we told you to get out of the market last year. We really did. About, oh, the first part of the year. Hey, look, there's no upside to this. Not saying it's going to crash, but there's no reason to have your money at risk. Go into something with a safe, small interest rate or something like that, but get out of the stock market this year. We said that last year. So when the heck do you get back in? 
John Pugliano will talk to you about that. We'll also hear about the ins and outs of something called the M67. Some of you Army guys or, or Marines are also going, Grenades! No, can't buy those in the military surplus market. The M67 immersion heater. What is that? What does it do? And why might you want one in your preps? You'll find out today from Tim Glantz. We're also going to talk about, well, if you're running a farm or a farmstead and you have more work than you can do, how the heck do you hire people? You know, how does that work? Does it make sense? And, of course, Darby Simpson would be the guy to weigh in on that. He has some interesting thoughts on that. He's going to tell you about a big event that they're doing up his way that'll be really cool that some of you up in that direction might want to get to. It's going to be a two-day event uh, modeled very much like the TSP workshops we do here. But for some of you, it might be geographically more pleasing to you than coming all the way down to north-central Texas. And I am going to end the show today, and I'm going to tell you about something the government schools are doing that will conclusively prove my claim that they are not public schools. They are government schools. Some of you that tune in to me on Facebook already know what that story is about, but I'm going to play the video for you, and I think you might just have an aneurysm. So be careful. Take a few deep breaths as I go into the last segment, and we'll talk about more. What do you do about stuff like this? What do you do about stuff like this? And then we're going to leave the show today with some good, good rock and roll music for the weekend. How about that? So that's what we got all planned up for today. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead And let's take a look at the year that was the episode. You know, every day I have two or three of these from Alex, and usually I just immediately pick one as soon as I read them all. Today, it wasn't just like, oh, which one? I was like, really? I don't know which one to read because I think these are all really neat. Um, here's what I have. Taking a gamble on the sandwich. I also have, what are you afraid of? The first grammar troll. And I have the final bubble burst for New Orleans. I'm going to read Taking a Gamble on the Sandwich because I thought they were all equal and this one came first. And that was how I decided to make the decision today. You might want to check out tspwiki.com for the year 1762 to learn all about these, this cool year and all the great work that Alex does to put these parts of history together for you that you might never know about otherwise. And remember, we take a look at history to get historical context or sometimes just to learn cool stuff. By the next year, uh, by the next year, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, John Mark Tagg, will rise up to high office in the English government based on his merit. It won't be because of his money, since he is always hitting up the Prince of Wales for a loan. This year, the Earl will become famous for eating meat between two slices of bread. People will name it the Sandwich after the Earl. He is the same fellow who will become the first Lord of Admiralty during the American Revolution. His decisions on the deployment of the fleet will reflect worries the French might launch an invasion across the English Channel. The Earl will take a lot of blame when Great Britain loses the war. Once Cornwallis surrenders to Washington in 1781, the Earl of Sandwich will fall from power. My take by Alex Shrugged. The reason the sandwich was invented was because the Earl didn't want his 24-hour gambling binge to be interrupted by a formal meal. The Earl had issues, and if anyone feels compelled to hate the British leadership during the American Revolution, one can't go too wrong with hating the Earl of Sandwich. He was a pig. If it was just one report on gambling, I probably wouldn't mention it, but it was also the Earl's adultery, Satan worship, pornography, and... uh. Never mind, I'll stop there. Some of the intellectuals and aristocrats of the time had gone right off the rails. It wasn't everyone, and not all of it was bad, but some of it was very, very bad. Society was finding its way, and many ways it still is. The world may not be the best of all worlds, but it is still a pretty darn good compared to the, quote, good old days. Frankly, they weren't all that good. So I'm going to live a better day in a better way starting today. Good, good viewpoint on that. 
um, I'll kind of point out that what was happening and what was making these people go so absolutely insane with their behavior was a couple things. One, we were learning more and more about the world and more and more things were becoming available to go nuts with. Um, their wealth and power had grown immensely and there was, it was a time when, you know, what do you do if you're wealthy and powerful? You, you couldn't go out and buy a great big yacht, you know, and, and cruise around and, and go, you know, gamble down in Morocco or whatever, you know. You, you, you couldn't get on a plane and go across the, the world and, you know, stay in fancy hotels and stuff like that. They had reached a point of opulence without a place to, you know, throw all their opulence at. And you could look back at some of the stuff they did have and go, that's a lot of opulence, but... Obviously, it's pretty boring if you just look at it every day. Like It makes me think of the Vanderbilt House. Have you ever been to the Vanderbilt House uh, in North Carolina? It's incredible opulence, but I think, well, what if that was just it? That was just your life. That was just every day. Sooner or later, you're like, okay, I got all this stuff. Why, why am I not happy? And I think that was a big part of it, too. Uh, they had reached such levels of control, power, and wealth, yet they weren't happy. So they did things that harmed others. The more they change, the more they stay the same, guys, huh? Just saying. Maybe having all this, these toys and places to go actually makes the rich a little less of a problem today than they would be otherwise. I don't know. The other thing it makes me think of is something totally, totally not connected, but yet it is. Another sandwich. Another sandwich. A famous sandwich. This famous sandwich that a bunch of you are going to go, I know that sandwich, and a bunch of you are going to go, the what? Okay? The Pamani Brothers sandwich from Pittsburgh. Pamani Brothers actually kind of did the same thing, but it wasn't for gambling. It was originally for truckers. So you go in, you get your sandwich, your french fries, and your your slaw. And it's like a, it's not like a gooey, gross, it's like a dry, lightly dressed slaw. And uh, you, you get that on a plate, and you sit down, you eat that, you eat your slaw, you eat your, your, your french fries, right? But the truckers, like, how do they do this? So they put the fries and the slaw on the sandwich so the trucker could come in, grab a sandwich, get in his rig, and go driving down the road and eat his whole meal. Right, and now it's like kind of like when you go to Pittsburgh and you've never been before, and your friend picks you up. They go, "We got to take you to Pamani's before you leave." And if you're ever in Western Pennsylvania, make the trip onto the largest small town in America. That's how I feel about Pittsburgh. I I have an I'm from Pennsylvania, but I have an affinity for Pittsburgh that's beyond being from Pennsylvania. I think Pittsburgh is the coolest city you can visit in America. I really do because. You can be in downtown at Three River Stadium and, and all of the kind of the, the, the modern world, you know. But, like, you can travel, like, four miles and be in, like, a small neighborhood corner bar that people walk to. And you can still buy beer for a couple dollars a pitcher. It, is, it really is the biggest small town in America. If you ever get there, get the Pimani Brothers. Tell them Jack Spirico sent you. And they'll be like, who? And then you can laugh because they really have no idea who I am. With that, real quick, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, the next time you consider investing in firearms, consider investing in yourself first by taking a course with Fortress Defense Consultants. From basic to advanced courses and even specialized courses for women, Fortress Defense has it all. Learn more at FortressDefense.com. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. 
In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And with that, let me remind you real quick, we are now taking your votes in a poll for Tuesday shows, which are the standalone Just Jack shows. Um, the six that are up for consideration for finishing out this month are small-scale food forestry, making and using herbal medicines, outdoor cooking, setting up a remote property, how to talk to friends about prepping without sounding like a loon, and investing in gold and silver. There's a link in the show notes to where you can vote on our forum. Yes, you have to register for the forum to vote. Um, not because I want it to be that way, because I haven't found a really great polling app that just works without putting a bunch of advertising in your face. That's why. Um, the apps that I found to do it on Facebook, they mine way too much data for my comfort for my users. And the ones that I found that are standalone are even worse. So if you know a good polling app that just does what it's supposed to do, even if it costs a couple bucks, let me know and I'll move the polling there. But, hey, register for the forum anyway. You get a Ph.D. in prepping on our forum. With that, let's go ahead and get into our first segment of the day from Michael Sulapres. And, again, this is, if you're going to homeschool, well, how do you set up? What kind of structure do you set up? Is it free-for-all? Is it is it very regimented? What do you do? Mike, Sue, what do you guys say? This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Thanks again, Jack, for encouraging us to help people think about homeschooling. Here's today's question. What are your thoughts on how much structure to provide a child in a homeschool environment? We have a three-year-old and another on the way in a few more months. I've seen everything from basically state school curriculum at home to full-on unschooling. My gut is some sort of balance makes the most sense. Also, how does one create curriculum if one is not a teacher that isn't just a carbon copy of what the state does? I want to encourage the young people listening, it's never too early to begin thinking about this. It was easy for me because I hated school my whole life. Even as a small child, I couldn't understand why we had to sit on a bus and in a classroom when there was a wonderful world outside to explore, which we did during non-school periods with my mom. Educating our children is the most fundamental way that we can emancipate ourselves and push the envelope toward greater freedom for everyone. Everyone can't start homeschooling tomorrow, But you can begin teaching your children about what's really important when you're with them. So during the early preschool years, designing your family dynamic is the structure and curriculum. You'll hear us referring to homeschooling as a lifestyle. For most homeschoolers, it's a single-income household, and you have to adjust accordingly. We do have a lot of curriculum, though. Why is that? I got sidetracked into being normal and producing a standardized kid. For a homeschool parent, by far the most discouraging thing is to try and follow a standard public school curriculum like it's written and feel like a failure because either you can't figure it out or your child isn't at level. It's not you. We can't monocrop humans any more than we can our food and expect a holistic, healthy future. From what I'm seeing and our learning now, the more we're investing in permaculture and sustainable living, the more interesting the learning is. Become, uh, is becoming with fantastic outcomes for the kids to have achieved real successes, which isn't a participation trophy, but 28 jaws of strawberry jam. I'm really enjoying that. Hmm. Now, our question is about preschool, and we're going to focus today on those of structure and curriculum. But be sure to send Jack other specific questions you might have about your own situation, or feel free to contact Sue. So, if we start thinking about the intentional design of the child and start teaching from that springboard, Instead of trying to get away from the government school model, we'll have a healthier future. Early on in our homeschool journey, I chose to be discouraged because I couldn't figure out how to do school at home. 
The single other homeschool family we knew would pass on private Christian school material to me, and our oldest child whipped through two years of seat work in a single year. By five, he'd finished second grade. And our next hands-on discovery child didn't learn to read fluently until she was ten. Focus on your family design and structure in these early years. Think about it like putting trees on your property early on in the right places for future harvest. We're going to use the three permaculture ethics to describe practical ways for designing your family. Our first, and for us the most important ethic, is the care of people. In the family dynamic, there are some simple things you can structure to make growing and learning together easier, systematic, and fun. Communication between spouses is key to the healthy functioning of a family. While we've changed a lot over the 34 years that we've been together, our basic character remains the same. Sue's basic character is focused on fun and winging it, and I tend to be systematic and more towards logical processes. The cool thing is we've both learned to love the other side of creating a strong family. In order to manage the nine people living in our house from age 3 to 58, we have a central communication system posted in the house where everyone could leave notes. This is an $11 whiteboard from Home Depot, and it works great when everyone uses it. It requires some care to keep it current, but our older kids can leave notes if they need help with something. There's a grocery list that even the littlest writer can add to, a calendar of events, meal plan, and extra chores. We have fairly regular family meetings, in good times and bad, to stay in touch, and we try to have as many family meals as possible. Our goal is two or fewer activities outside the home in the evenings. We found that the care of people requires time, and your family is a great uh, investment that's worthy of your time. Mother Teresa has an excellent reminder. If you want to do something great, go home and love your family. We all say we want to put our family first, but take a look at your calendar and ask yourself if it reflects a true family-first plan. Don't kid yourself that a, and an activity that your whole family takes part in and is putting your family first. When everyone walks in the door and goes their separate ways, you're not spending time with your family. You're just contributing to the system that separates families. All right. Next, we have the permaculture ethic that is great for small children, care of the earth. Let's call that personal responsibility. It's hard to get someone from irresponsible to caring for the earth. So the more parents that are becoming responsible for their own children and raising those children to be personally responsible, the closer we'll get to a healthy and cared for earth. In the preschool years, there are so many things your kids can do. They're really amazing if you let them be. You have to figure out where your kiddo is and train them from that starting point. Find things that they can do themselves. Now you have to be willing for those chores to be less than excellent. We have our kids make their own beds, and our 9-year-old's bed is a lumpy pile, but our 8-year-old's is flat with very organized pillows and a folded blanket at the end. It's almost identical to when they started making their own bed at 2 and 3 when we first got them. As each child learns to manage one chore, like getting themselves dressed, you add putting their clothes in the laundry, then emptying a trash can, and you keep adding to this. The more consistent you are with requiring this to be done daily, the more the pattern will be ingrained, and they won't even think about it. This didn't work out at our house until Sue developed her own good habits. Our homeschool morning started with, what do you guys want to do today, and ended with the house a total mess every day. It was really awful, but as we sought help, and as the family began to develop a structure that was focused on our daily living, so much learning flowed out of that. And I began to see that being organized paid off because you could actually find the supplies you wanted for each activity. 
Over the years, I've met many homeschool moms that are discouraged about their homeschool because they're trying to get the curriculum right, when a solid chore structure would solve many of the problems that curriculum can't. By exhibiting personal responsibility, we teach future generations. For young kids, it starts small. When our oldest was eight, he was mad at Sue for not having washed the shorts he wanted to wear for that day's adventure. At this point, Sue was doing laundry for six, including cloth diapers. Sue said, I'm so sorry, but I'll make sure that never happens again. On the way home from that day's adventure, they stopped and picked up a laundry basket, and she told him how to do his own laundry. This turned into a family tradition of getting a new laundry basket on your eighth birthday. Giving your kids as much personal responsibility as they can handle is important if we're going to create self-reliant adults. Teaching our kids to do things is our primary job, and it takes time to train them. If they're sitting in a classroom for the majority of their life, how are you going to find the time to train them? They're being trained to be waited on. We pay our kids for certain tasks, but it goes like this. Anything you have to do for yourself, you don't get paid for. Anything you would have to do for yourself if you lived by yourself, you don't get paid for either. Everyone helps with meals, dishes, housework, and basic yard work. Extra yard work and special projects are ways for kids to earn money. When the kids are small and learning new skills, we often use sticker charts to make sure I'm making sure that they're getting their work done. Then when they're a bit older, we use tour cards with pictures and words. Our standard morning rule is you don't eat breakfast until your morning chores are done. Sometimes breakfast is cold, but it's about learning to make choices on how quickly you do your work. When I was having this discussion about requiring self-reliance by not providing everything for everyone, this social worker I was talking to told me, you can't change all those people. My response was, we just took three, and they're out of the system, changed from being dependent to self-reliant. It starts at your house. If a child is in daycare from a young age, everything is done for them. The daycare isn't allowed to let them help cook or clean. They spend so much time sitting and waiting for someone to do for them. Then they go on to kindergarten for more of the same, and by the time they're 18, they've spent most of their life without having to do real work or think for themselves, which leaves us with a growing percentage of dependent adults. Mm -hmm. Now, this leaves us with our third permaculture ethic, return a surplus. You can grow in abundance and let it rot on the vine without a plan, and the same thing goes with raising children. Eventually, they have to venture out and get something done. We constantly remind ourselves that we're not raising children, we're raising adults. You don't call your apple tree a sapling its whole life. From the moment you plant the sapling, you start calling it an apple tree. We're raising the adults of the future, and we need more freedom-loving, free-thinking, resilient humans on this planet. For your long-range plans that will get your child to adulthood, there is no perfect curriculum. When I asked my mom, who's written IEPs, the Individual Evaluation Plans, and taught everything from PPCD, GT, ESL in college, she said, can you name a curriculum that is proven to be 100% effective? The answer is, absolutely not. Even the best curriculum needs to be presented in a way that the learner can grasp. Our educational system has its very own language to give the impression that they know what they're talking about, and if you can't speak their language you must not be qualified to teach. Don't be fooled by the stupid lingo that is constantly changing and know that they actually hold classes for teachers to learn the new jargon because it doesn't make sense by itself. Curriculum is simply a course of study. You can purchase one that you like or design them as you go. We've used a combination approach over the years. We began with no homeschool budget, and Sue would go to the library and hand copy lessons from math and phonics books onto Green Bar dot matrix printer paper. 
Then we began receiving free curriculum passed down and finally figured out how to budget for our homeschooling. <coughs> Excuse me. At one point, we realized that we were spending way too much time completing curriculum-driven tasks instead of learning real things, so we took a break from most of the curriculum in order to reevaluate. While we started with mostly free curriculum, when I had the option to buy things, I started with curriculum designed by homeschool parents. We've used the same writing and math curriculum for 17 years, the ones that I could understand and teach each of my kids based on their different styles. There's a huge learning curve on how to use each curriculum, so rather than relearning a curriculum each year, I spend time learning more great stuff with my kids. Then about 11 years ago, we found a great homeschool history, literature, geography, art, worldviews, and other great stuff curriculum all rolled into one that um, is for preschoolers to dad that was brand new, and um, since then it's been pretty much the same for us as far as curriculum. We don't do any of them exactly the way they say, and we take breaks from each of them from time to time to have an adventure. I'll try to get some of the course of study things we do on our website so you can see how simple it is. For the yearly years, we recommend lots of time spent talking, reading stories, and playing as you walk along the way. You can read more about the curriculum mentioned on our website, halobysue.com. And I would recommend some careful research before you begin buying. Start with free resources online because the curriculum end of homeschooling can be really expensive and it's not very resilient to buy and sell constantly. Thanks again, Jack, for this great opportunity, and I hope all of you go out and have an adventure with your kids. Remember, you don't have to climb Mount Everest. It can be as simple as a walk around the block to meet some neighbors. For the Expert Council, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise from HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live, wishing you many great adventures. You know, guys, I want to, I want to tell you real quick the story of how these guys ended up on the council. Uh, their son came to one of my workshops and said, hey, would you be interested in having my parents cover this subject? And I said, yes, I would. And it took a little time to get them set up so they could record. But I don't think they would have reached out um, individually. Uh, I think the only reason that we ended up with them on the council was that he came to one of our workshops and you know, we talked about this type of thing and it came out. And I, I want to use that to encourage you to not come to my workshops. Well, please come. Don't, don't think that wrong, but, but to go to things like that anywhere that you can. Because it's amazing some of the relationships that are developed in these events, these, you know, they can be the, the quick one day weekend things. They can be the long term things. And when you go to stuff like this and you meet like minded people, take the time to really get to know people. And don't let the relationships go away after the event. Um, make friends and, and, and follow up, I guess would be the way to put it. Uh, next up, we're going to hear from Michael Jordan on Trapping Swarms. Michael, take it away. Hello, and thank you for your questions here on the Survival Podcast. I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on bees Apiary management and mead making. I got a question from Mark in Indiana asking where I should put up swarm traps in order to have the highest chance of success. I live in Indiana, north of Indianapolis. I've never kept bees before. I have all the equipment, but I decided to try trapping a couple of swarms instead of buying packages of bees. Good for you. I have made three swarm trap boxes similar to nuke boxes. My plan is to put four or five frames with foundation in each swarm trap and hang them in a tree. I also have four hive bodies available. I was going to put them on the ground level like normal and bait each box with lemongrass oil. 
Here's some locations I've considered. I could put a nuke box in a pine tree that would provide both sun and shade and easy to climb. I could put them on the south-facing tree line. I've read that that works well. I could even place them 20 feet high and on a Tana tower that's open. Uh, I plan to place two traps on three different location properties that are 10 to 30 miles apart from each other. They belong to my family, and we will check them once a week for activity, is what we've been told. I would love to hear your suggestions. Sincerely, Mark. Well, Mark, you have a great layout there. You're using nuke boxes, foundations, and forms. You're uh, getting everything kind of ready to go. Mark, when it comes to swarm trapping, you need to see where the bees are. Setting traps works best for you if you find bee yards or trees that have bees in it. They're called bee trees, and they're like a great thing for feral catching of bees. That A lot of beekeepers actually look for bee trees for feral and native bee collection. Uh, Now that I've got that kind of started and stated, I think that you need to uh, put your bee traps, you know, 20 feet in the air. Uh, And then you need to keep them 20 feet away from the bee trees or any location where you're finding the bees. This works best because as they swarm, they do their flight orientation. And it's usually going to get them about 20 feet in the air. And if they see that location 20 feet away, they have a more ability to get in there. Using the lemongrass oil is perfect. So I think you have a great, great plan. Um, finding an apiary is a good place. Make sure you respect the apiary owner. Uh, if you get in with them, they might even uh, let you help and learn to split hives. And splitting their hives gives them more bees. In which you might get them. You're bringing your own traps and stuff. And you're helping them not lose their bees. And maybe help them to requeen. So you might even learn some skills by helping them. So uh, here's here's some good tips on looking where you can find swarms. You know, people report swarms uh, all the time to their Department of Agriculture, Weed and Pest, County Extension Agencies. They list them on Craigslist. And on Craigslist, you can even list your name that you're looking for swarms where you can go and pick them off the porch or tree limbs that are hanging yourself. Make a map. Start mapping locations where people are reporting swarms. Looking at finding maybe narrowing down locations where the bees are, you have more incorporation of catching them. Working with people and neighbors that you might be able to find. You might find them inside of a building. They might ask for a swarm removal. Remember, A swarm removal doesn't necessarily mean you're removing a swarm out of the house. It could already be an established colony that's there. So putting swarm traps, like I said, 20 by 20, you might be able to incorporate catching some of the bees that are coming out of there if they begin to swarm. Because doing a bee removal out of a house or anything like that, you should have a contractor really come in to help you. Because any repairs and stuff are going to be done will be costly. And bee removals are different than bee swarms, so... That's something also to think about when you're looking at that. You know, once you get your mapping going, you can actually probably find these bee trees or where the bees are located and get a constant supply where you could actually build your apiary faster or start selling those nuke boxes over a six-month time period as building blocks. I'm hoping this will get you some uh, good information on collecting swarms. 
You know, a good swarm trap is the three-inch PVC and bucket technique that I talk about. You know, the nuke box with the frames works phenomenal. There are many swarm traps listed in Danit Brothers, Man Lake, Western Bee Supply, and many other places. You know, you can incorporate those. But uh, I think you have a good system. You're already ready to go, and you said you have your equipment. So just try to find out locations where the bees are already and try to set up your swarm traps there. Great question, and I'm glad that you're trying to get into it and taking a more natural response to trying to find good feral bees at your altitude, climate, and location. This will help keep your bees uh, alive longer uh, based on the feeding habits that you do and the treatments that you use. So good luck on your swarm catching. Hopefully I've been some help with you. Hey, as always, I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, telling you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy from Cottage Industries, because we all had to start somewhere. And help your fellow man, because as always, one day you might need help too. Good stuff from Michael. A little update on my evil bees, right? My evil bees. They were these beautiful, blonde, calm bees that you could almost pet. And uh, last year, they uh, the, the queen, uh, new queen bred with uh, local ferals and have evil bitch bees. Um, Jason, my bee mentor, came uh, Wednesday night and uh, transported the bees to his place. He's going to recreen them and split them two to four. And uh, they'll be coming back and getting a new location on my property that's less likely to bother my neighbors and uh, move them away from the uh, quail aviary, free that space up for me. And so I'm learning about requeening this year. We're also, I'm going to try to on Sunday, because I'll actually have time, to assemble the two top bar beehives that came to me from Eliza Spring Farm. I'll get some stuff out on those. And we're going to be making those available uh, to you guys at a discount. Uh, either under the Regen Ag, you can get them custom made with Regen Ag stuff on them or TSP stuff on them. So those are coming. So my evil bees are in the process of becoming not-so-evil bees, and then they're going to come back here. The good news, I'll go from two hives to four. The bad news, no honey for me this year. I'll have to be getting honey next year off of them as we build those hives up. Uh, we're going to have to knock them way, way down to make them accept the new queens. I'm learning more and more about bees and how complex it really can be. Pun not intended. With that, let's get into the uh, next one. Again, Stephen Harris heard my discussion about uh, diesel trucks, and he's got some advice for you that, that echoes my advice and some other advice for you that I kind of mentioned but didn't really point out that it could apply to you if you lived in Pennsylvania like Steve does or anywhere. You know the best place for you to shop for a used diesel truck just might be Texas? Listen to Steve and you'll find out why. Hi, this is Steve Harris for Expert Panel. I'm calling in. To add to something Jack said yesterday on Thursday about diesel engines. For many of you, you know that I was an engineer for Chrysler Corporation, Daimler Chrysler Corporation. My specific specific division was Jeep and Truck Engineering on Plymouth Road in Detroit, Michigan. I worked on the development of the Jeeps and the Dodge Rams and the Dodge Trucks, including the diesels. I have owned a diesel since 2004. I was I left Chrysler at 2000, so I've not been exposed to the newest emission stuff. But I want to echo what Jack said when it comes to chipping your vehicle and modifying the engine. Don't F with the engine. It takes us over $5 billion in $1990 to completely develop 
a new vehicle, a new engine, a new driveline. Five billion dollars. That's probably eight to ten billion dollars today to develop a new vehicle. It takes an average of three hundred million dollars just to develop the engine. As Jack said, there are very intelligent engineers who do nothing but drive vehicles around on a daily basis, and they have little computers on their dashes, and they keep on adjusting with the settings of the engine. And then this goes onto a dynamometer, and you do final calibrations and adjustments, and then you do the stuff for the EPA and emissions, which is a whole nother half-hour story in itself. So don't F with it at all. Now, I want to tell you a good story in a short period of time. In 2004, I bought a 2001 Dodge Diesel 2500 Ram pickup truck. Uh, this is a little lesson about economics of diesel engines. So, in 2004, I paid $15,000 in 2004 dollars for a truck that was three years old and had 175,000 miles on it. I just sold that vehicle this week in 2016 with 318,000 miles on it. I sold it for $5,500. And I could have held out and gotten more for it, but I just wanted to get rid of it, and I got rid of it to a happy family. It was leaking too much oil, and it was rusting too much. And my wife didn't like the rust, and I didn't like the oil leaking. I didn't want to spend to have the oil leak fixed, which was significant. So I sold the vehicle. Now, I bought this vehicle in Dallas, Texas. I drove from Michigan with my camper all the way down to Dallas. I looked on Auto Trader beforehand. I printed out a whole bunch of diesel trucks. I went from lot to lot to lot looking at diesel trucks. In Texas, they have used car lots that are diesel truck only. No cars. No gasoline, diesel truck only. This is cattle and oil country, people. They have a lot of diesel trucks down there. Up here where I am in Pennsylvania right now, you might find a few trucks here and there listed around. In fact, the guy who bought my 2001 diesel, it was either my truck or another one in Ohio that he had to go purchase. So I bought a really clean truck that was all southern in Dallas, and I got it for a damn good price. I got that truck for 15 grand, probably three to five grand less than I would have had to pay to a trust to a truck up north that had been exposed to salt. So I spent a little bit less than ten thousand dollars to drive that truck from 04 to 16. So 12 years of driving, I was about ten thousand dollars in vehicle investment. Now, did I have to put repairs into it? Yes. I had to have the transmission rebuilt. I had to have it fixed again. I had to have uh, rear brakes, front brakes, tie rods. I had to have wheel bearings. I had to have a radiator and an HVAC evaporator put into it. Yeah, I spent thousands of dollars on the vehicle to keep it running. But, you know, it averaged out to probably being around $100 to $150 a month average in repairs for the vehicle. Remember, it's a heavy-duty vehicle, so everything is heavy-duty in price for a heavy-duty vehicle. Now, the engine, I never touched. I, nothing ever wrong with the engine at 318,000 miles. Nothing. Uh, the water pump went, and I had to have the water pump replaced. Nothing on the fuel pump either. Okay, this is the economics of diesel vehicles. Now, this is an 8,000-pound vehicle that can tow anything and haul anything. 
and I would get 17 to 18 miles a gallon city and highway driving around this vehicle. So I'm paying about the same price for premium fuel for diesel, and I'm getting better fuel economy than any other pickup truck. Other pickup trucks of my class that are gasoline are getting 8 miles a gallon, 10 miles a gallon. I'm getting 17 to 18 miles a gallon driving this truck around. Now, I just got another diesel vehicle, and I got it from Dallas, Texas. I went online, searched for used diesel vehicles, found a really good uh, used dealership. He worked with me. They catered to people on the Internet, and I waited for one to come in that I want. And this was a four-door diesel truck long bed. Forget about even finding a four-door diesel truck up here in Pennsylvania. You can't find one with a long bed up here either. These can only be found from Texas. So now I can have five people, uh, actually six people in the vehicle, and I can haul anything, tow anything I so desire, and I got it from Texas with no rust. It's going to be Z-barded this time, so I won't have any rust issues. So I'll be able to keep it longer. And I paid, get this, the vehicle's about a year and a half old. I paid $30,000 under the sticker price for the vehicle in Texas. I got it for a bargain. I saved five to $8,000 or more over what I would have paid for the vehicle, even if I could have found it up here in Pennsylvania. I had a private party inspector. I Googled it, found one in Dallas. That's all he does is inspect cars. He's a mechanic for 25 years. For $125, he went and inspected it. It took him an hour and a half to inspect everything. He sent me 85 photographs of everything about the vehicle. And then I called up U-Ship, as in the letter U-S-H-I-P. Those were the people on Shipping Wars on TLC. For $720, they shipped the vehicle within a week and a half from Dallas up here to my door in Pennsylvania. So I didn't have to drive down. I didn't have to get it. I didn't have to fly down. I didn't have to drive back. I didn't have to get hotels. I didn't have to do any of that. These are the economics of a diesel engine. How could I afford to buy these diesel vehicles? Because I have no debts, except for a house. Okay, I got no debts. And I paid cash for my first diesel vehicle. And then I drove a vehicle with 17 miles to the gallon fuel economy that could do all the work for me, so I never had to rent a trailer or do anything else. So that saved me money. So I had more money saved up. So when I wanted to buy a 2014, this is what I got, a 2014 Dodge Ram 2500 6.7 liter diesel engine from Dallas, Texas. I could afford to do that because I saved so much money by having a vehicle that I drove for 12 years that was 16 years old. You are just not going to beat the economics of a diesel engine. And don't go, oh, diesel fuel's more expensive. You know what? You're getting a hell of a lot more fuel economy. So the end result, the higher-priced diesel is a lot cheaper than if you're driving a gasoline vehicle. And that vehicle can do a hell of a lot more than a gasoline vehicle can do. And that vehicle can go for 500,000 to a million miles, unlike a gasoline vehicle engine can. So if the body holds out, everything else holds out, you can get a million miles out of a diesel. And that, my friends, is a basic lesson in the economics of a diesel vehicle. If you would like to know who I used in Dallas, and for the inspector and for the dealer, I can't say enough about this dealer. He bent over backwards. He fabulous communications. If you want to do the same thing, you just go to stephen1234.com. 
I'll get my email in the upper right. You email me, put diesel truck in the subject line, and I will tell you everything I did, how I did it, so you can repeat it. You can repeat it with an Arizona truck. You can repeat it from a Texas truck. You can repeat it with a Florida truck. You can repeat it however you want, but I'll tell you how I did it and all that other stuff. Thanks, guys. And Jack, love diesel vehicles. I know I'm preaching to the crowd, and I think it's something great that the TSP audience should be exposed to. And no, I'm not worried about the new emissions at all with the deaf fluid either. All the bugs have been worked out of it. And also, for you guys wondering, you can actually get the emissions package deleted from the truck. It's uh, There's some places that will do it for you, and it costs about $2,500. They'll remove all the emissions stuff. And, well, you can worry about the state police pulling you over. But, I mean, it's a private vehicle. They're not going to be checking the emissions on it. See ya. I think he likes diesels. Would he? <laughs> he seems pretty pretty excited about this. On, on the DEF, um, echoing kind of what Steve said, just here's my problem with the DEF. And, and I think it was clear on this when this whole chain of truck stuff started. I don't have a problem with DEF itself, uh, which is diesel exhaust fluid. My problem is that some of these newer vehicles, if your DEF runs out, even though there's no reason that the vehicle wouldn't run, your vehicle won't run. So as long as I can find something that's pre-DEF, that's in great shape, that's what I would buy. But we're rapidly moving in so many years now that you know that may not be as much of an option in the future. But if you're going to buy a heavy work truck and you don't buy a diesel, it's a mistake. Another thing, um, I didn't even really think about this, but way back when I bought my 05 Super Duty, I bought it from a place called North Texas Truck Stop in Mansfield, Texas. For all I know, that's where Steve might have bought his truck. This place is about twice the size of your average new car dealership, about the lot on it. It is, like Steve said, there is nothing there but heavy-duty diesel pickup trucks. There's not a gas vehicle on the lot. There's not a car on the lot. There is nothing below about an F-250 class on the lot. It is all heavy-duty diesel trucks. And I, you know, I was able to go there and look at all the trucks and find what I really wanted and, and what have you. But the day that the guy was writing up my order, he was selling three trucks. One was going to Missouri, one was going to Tennessee, and one was going to Ohio. And he said he flat out sold more vehicles out of state than the people that actually came to the lot. And they're totally open to having inspectors come check out vehicles on your behalf and things like Steve talked about. So uh, I'm not saying specifically that if you buy a truck from this place, it will be great. I'm just saying they have an incredible selection of used vehicles. And I looked at dealerships you know, a couple miles away that had diddly squat when it came to trucks like this. And what they did have, they had huge premiums on them. There was a truck that I was like, if I didn't find this place, and it was only like 10 miles from my house, I went to the, uh, I think it was a Toyota dealership that had a, a traded in uh, F-250 that they wanted like 16000 for, and I think it was about the best thing I had seen. The truck I bought for $800 more, I think I paid sixteen eight for mine, blew it away. Blew it away in so many ways. It blew it away. So you might want to check in if you're looking for your next diesel vehicle. Check in with these guys and find other dealerships in the Texas area because even paying somebody to ship it for you, selection, price, availability, um, I don't think you can beat it. And what's funny is even though there are so many diesel vehicles here in Texas in oil country, my truck actually came from Missouri. 
So my truck was owned and, and used one owner truck out of Missouri. But so they're not only getting Texas vehicles into these places, they're bringing them from other parts of the country. And let me tell you, um, they go over them with a fine tooth comb. And when you buy one from at least the place I bought one from, you could eat off the motor. They steam clean every inch of this their vehicle. My vehicle will never again be as clean as it was the day that I got it from from uh, North Texas Truck Stop. So, not really a commercial form. Just hey, this is my experience. Um, next up, let's hear from John Pugliano about deciding when and how to get back into the crazy stock market that we have right now. Hello, TSP listeners. Nancy in Michigan has a question about the stock market, and she wants to know what signs that she should look for to get back into stocks. Well, Nancy, let me answer your question, and first let me give you a couple disclaimers. The first disclaimer is is that I'm not going to offer you any specific advice. When I come on to TSP, all I ever do is give you my opinion. I tell you what I'm personally doing. I try and give you some reasons for that. But then it's totally up to you to apply it to your own situation. The other disclaimer is is that I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. Uh, the little dirty secret is that nobody else can do that either. At best, what I can do, or what any of us can do, is to use our situational awareness and to combine that with a historical perspective and to try and determine where the market is headed. That's the best any of us can do. So it's really about assessing probabilities and risks. And now the third disclaimer that I want to make is that I've been approaching this market extremely cautiously for the better part of a year. In fact, I can't remember a time over the last 30 years where I was more concerned about a major pullback. Now, I want to point out here, I'm talking about a pullback or a bear market. I'm not concerned at this point about an economic collapse or some type of a meltdown in the economy. I'm just worried about a good old-fashioned traditional bear market that we generally see every five to seven years. In fact, the bull market that we're in right now is the second longest in history. We're more than overdue for a pullback. What not only concerns me about the longevity of this bull market is the fact that it's been juiced along the entire time by quantitative easing and other forms of central bank money printing or government deficit spending. And what we're really starting to see is the diminishing returns of all that stimulus. And this is true not only of the United States Federal Reserve, but of all the central banks globally. No matter how much deficit spending we're seeing from the governments, nor how much easing or money printing or low or negative interest rates from the central banks, they just can't pull the global economy out of the funk it's in. And so consequently, we're seeing 3% or less global growth. Now that's a real and present danger. And so the disclaimer I want to make to you is that I'm going to answer your question from a very defensive, very cautious position where to paraphrase Mark Twain, I'm more concerned with the return of my principal than the return on my principal. Now, having said all that, the simple answer to your question and the answer that I would have given you probably six to ten months ago would have been to simply watch the moving averages and specifically to watch the 100-day moving average. The reason that's so important is if you look back through past history, through all the bear and bull markets, you can see that if you had taken a conservative approach to only moving into the general market like the S&P 500 when it was above its 100-day moving average, that you would have participated in all the major uptrends and all the major bull markets. 
And the corollary to that is, had you gotten out of the market whenever that major index moved below its 100-day moving average, you would have, for the most part, stayed out of all the bear markets and, at the very least, had not suffered a catastrophic loss like occurred when the dot-com bubble or when the housing bubble blew up. For those of you that are not familiar with what I'm talking about, I provide Jack a link uh, to uh, just a short blog article I did, which is entitled Swing Trading in One Chart. And I give an example there of how following the 20-week moving average, or that can also be uh, considered a 100-day moving average, how that's a strategy to help you mitigate risk. Now, this is a very simple strategy, and it's never going to allow you to get in at the very bottom of the market or to sell and get out at the very top. No one has that type of clairvoyance. But by following a simple moving average, like the 20-week or the 100-day moving average, which is basically the accumulation of prices over the previous six months. By using that historical average as a guide, it can protect you from the extremes of the market. And it's been my experience over the last 30 years or so that although you can never time the market perfectly, there is still plenty of money to be made in the middle of the market, especially when you can avoid a catastrophic loss. And so for the better part of a year, that's where my priority has been, avoiding a catastrophic loss. Now, putting aside the, the red flags and the warning signs that I think that we're getting from the fundamental side of the market and the societal trends, just, you know, even ignoring those, my real concern is that shortly after we saw the S&P 500 hit its all-time high back around July of 2015, so just last summer, shortly after it had made that high, the index had struggled to stay above its 100-day moving average. And then not only did the index drop below its 100-day moving average, but the 100-day moving average dropped below its 200-day moving average. But to this day, and I'm, I'm not sure when Jack is going to play this uh, clip from me, but I'm recording this on March 31st, 2016. So to this day, the S&P's 100-day moving average, which is basically the price over the last six months, that moving average remains below the 200-day moving average, which is basically the one-year average. The reason this is important is that if you go all the way back to when this bull market started in March of 2009, we have not seen any sustained period when that six-month moving average was below the one-year moving average. Currently, we're seeing those conditions persisting for about seven months. Now, you've got to go all the way back to January of 2008 before we've seen that happen in the last 10 years. That's very disconcerting to me. And because I am very concerned with preserving my capital, I don't think I will move back into this market at least until that 100-day or that six-month moving average moves above the 200-day moving average or the one-year moving average on the S&P 500. Now, I apologize for being wonky and talking about numbers and moving averages and things. I know it can be really confusing, but Nancy, that's really the best answer I can give you. To further tell you how cautious I'm moving, even when we see those averages cross, I'm most likely not going to get back into the market for the exact same reason that I had about this time last year, and that's the simple fact that I think that the risk-reward strategy is still out of balance. At best, I see this market moving up no more than, say, 3 to 6%. And yet, on the other hand, I see the potential for at least a 20% correction to be very probable. Now, remember, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I'm just telling you, when I look at the fundamentals of this market and I see where the real earnings growth is, and incidentally, corporate earnings have been declining for the last 17 months. Now, we're going to have to see where they end up once we get into April and first quarter earnings come out. 
But looking at the fundamentals and then looking at the overall 3% or less global growth rate, over the short term, I'm not optimistic about this market. Going back to those moving averages that I talked about and looking at them over the last 10 years or so, the few times that that 100-day moving average in the S&P 500 did get below and stay below its 200-day moving average for, say, several months at a time, and remember, we're already seven months into this, Back in 2010 and 2011, when those moving averages were breached, the index didn't find support until it hit its long-term moving average of around 16 years. Now, what worries me about the market that we're in is that our current long-term average of, say, 15 or 16 years on the S&P 500 is all the way down at about 1350 on the S&P 500. And that's a long way from where we are right now, which is right around 2060. Now, I'm not saying that it's likely to go that low, but I'm saying that from a historical and from a technical perspective, it is probable. And even if we don't see that much pessimism play out, remember that bear markets of at least a 20% correction generally occur every five to seven years. Well, we're way overdue for that to happen. And if we did see a 20% pullback from the highs of last May, that would still drop the S&P 500 down to about 1,700. So for all those reasons, I remain very cautious. I'm keeping my eye on global growth and specifically on growth in China. That'll be manifest in what we see with commodity prices, particularly things like oil, copper, and silver. And I want to see that 100-day moving average on the S&P 500 not only flatten out, but start to move upward. Now, Nancy, that's a long way of answering your question and basically telling you that I think that the high for this market was reached last June and that we're most likely at the tail end of a seven-plus-year bull market. We're starting to see this market roll over. I'm going to wait a little bit longer before I jump back into this market with both feet. Thanks for the question. If you'd like to hear more about my market analysis or my general thoughts on wealth building, then please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff from John justifying every bit of the advice that I would give you right now. Don't do it yet. I mean, that, that's I, I'm still back to I don't right now see the market in a position where there is potential for major upside rewards. And without major upside reward, there's no reason to take the risk. If, if I'm in anything right now, it's individually chosen stocks that are stable even in a downturn and are producing dividends in the order of 4 to 5%, which is better than I can get in any other investment. And I watch them carefully, and if I think something's wrong with them, I get out. That, that, that's the Jack Spirico answer to it. And that's why we have people like John, because they can explain the technicals behind what I just look at and intrinsically say, no, I'm not doing it right now. Anyway, next up, I have um, a question for Tim Glantz on the M67 immersion heater. Tim, take it away. Hi, all you survival podcast listeners out there. Tim Glantz, the old Grouch's military surplus, with an expert panel answer for Mike, uh, who's asking about the immersion heaters, the USGI immersion heaters. He said he sees that I've got them back in stock, and can I talk about how they work, basic care and maintenance, and some uses for them, uh, other than cleaning the dishes, which, which is what the Army always had me do with them. Well, Mike, uh, by the time I got that answer, uh, that question, I take it back, uh, those were already sold out. Uh, at one time, I was able to get a lot of those immersion heaters. Those days are pretty well over. Um, when we get them now, uh, I got 14 of them in. I put it out on an email. Uh, put it out on our Facebook page, gave our Facebook page people uh, 
first dibs for a couple hours, then it went out on an email, and uh, they were gone within about an hour and a half of me hitting send on that email announcing we had them. Uh, they always sell out really fast whenever I can find some now. Uh, so uh, if you do want one in the future, I tell everybody, uh, watch our Facebook page. Uh, even if you're not a Facebook user, it's set so you can still go to it without being a Facebook user and look at it. Because anytime we get something like that that's limited supply, limited stock, first notice goes on Facebook, and then uh, some, a lot of times if it's just one or two of something or a limited number or something, it, it sells right there and never gets any further. Uh, after that, it goes on the website, and then a promotional email goes out and announcing it. So uh, uh, if you want the early heads up, uh, Facebook is, is the place to watch us there. And that's just because it's so much faster for us to be able to do it there. I can sit there on our phone, post a picture up, and say, hey, these are in stock, give us a call. Uh, it's not because you know uh, I'm pushing Facebook or anything else like that. It's just they've made the platform that it's a lot easier to promote it with. And also, if you're on Twitter, everything that goes on our Facebook does go on our Twitter feed. So... Both of those uh, will work for it, uh, to give you an early announcement. But back to uh, what they are. Basically, the immersion heater is a fuel-fired heater designed for heating large quantities of water. And it works by having a fuel tank that is attached to it, and a burner assembly fed by a tube, and the burner assembly drops down inside of the water, drops down under the water level, uh, Fuel drips down into the burner assembly. It hits a, a, a heavy steel plate that, once it's hot, vaporizes it. It burns inside that round donut-shaped burner, burner assembly that's down in the water. goes all the way around and then comes up an exhaust pipe that goes up uh, you know, several feet higher to create a good draft. And you can use one of these and bring a 55-gallon of drum, drum of water to a roar, roaring boil. Uh, as you said, the military used them for washing dishes and mess kits in the field. Typical setup is you would have three 37-gallon galvanized trash cans full of water, and you would have these sitting there with boiling water, and the first one would be boiling soapy water, and you would come through with your mess kit with your utensils hanging on it and dunk it down in there after you'd washed it. And then you would dunk it in the next boiling one that was rinsed and the next boiling one that was rinsed again, and that was supposed to get your uh, mess kit disinfected. Uh, other uses for them, a lot of my customers are heating greenhouses with them. Uh, they're taking a, either building a cement uh, water tank or taking a, a large metal stock tank, putting it in the greenhouse, installing a stove, uh, the immersion heater in there like it would be a, a wood stove because it's got a four-inch stove pipe just like a wood stove. And they will fire that heater up, get that water nice and hot, and that's a big heat sink. And it puts humidity into the greenhouse, and then, you know, once the heater goes out, it's going to radiate heat as, you know, as that water cools off all night long. Uh, I've had folks get them to do large-scale canning boiling water. I sold a bunch to a uh, guide service and uh, place uh, out in the Dakotas that took people out duck hunting, and they wanted to set them up to... Uh, uh, do the scalding for the ducks. I've sold them, sold them also for scalding hogs. Any application where you need hot water, and you need it in large quantities, and you might need it off-grid, they do the job. Uh, I've had folks even get them to suspend a water tank and, and heat the water for the showers in an off-grid cabin. Um, so, you know, and think of all the things you use hot water for, and, and I tell people that think about homesteading and off-grid and, you know, prep stuff that, 
Hygiene and sanitation are big things, and washing clothes and washing dishes and getting them properly cleaned, you know, that's part of staying alive, because if you don't, it breeds disease, and disease will kill you. So uh, that's what they are and how they work, and one of the nice things is they're made, intended for gasoline. They will run on diesel. They will run on a blend of diesel and gas. They will run on old, you know, gas that isn't good enough to run an automobile anymore. I know one fellow that got a heck of a buy at some auction on cases and cases and cases of charcoal lighter fluid and, uh, you know, something like a quarter of a bottle or something. It runs fine on that. Uh, one of the guys I know that heats three different greenhouses with him actually has an agreement. He's got 55-gallon drums at a lot of shops and garages and uh, especially outboard motor repair shops and all the old fuel they have to drain out of vehicles when they're... You know, somebody's left one sitting or, you know, people left their boat sit with the fuel in it and all that. He, they put it in there for him. He hauls it off for free for him so they don't have to dispose of it. And he gets free fuel uh, for his heaters. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a win-win for both. So uh, if you've got any kind of application where you might need to be heating water in, in, in big quantities, uh, these will do it. As far as maintenance, uh, there's very little needed other than cleaning the soot out from it every once in a while. Depending on what fuel you're using, you, you can develop some soot down in the burner. Take it down, uh, you know, run a brush down in there, run some uh, degreasing agent or something down in there, dump it out, let it dry, fire it back up. The only moving parts, uh, there's a little spring-loaded piece that lets you put a little fuel on a wick and get the draft growing. And there's the small valve on the fuel tank that adjusts the drip, and it's just a generic brass valve. So, you know, if it goes bad, you run down the hardware spores in a few bucks. Other than that, there's no moving parts on them, which is another one of the beauties of them, the simplicity. Uh, you're going to get rust on the outside of it. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it because it gets hot. You're not going to get paint to stick it, stick to it, and it goes down in the water. And, you know, it's going to stay wet, and it's going to stay bare metal. But they're thick enough that it doesn't hurt anything with the rust. Hope that explains some stuff. And like I said, I'm, I'm always looking to find more of them. It's, it's totally hit or miss when I do. Um, and, and unfortunately for those of you that remember my prices from five or six years ago, that I don't think they're ever going to be that cheap again because they don't make them anymore and the supply keeps going down. So, uh, you know, I will definitely, uh, like I said, first, first notice whenever they come in will be up on the Facebook page. So keep an eye on that. Thanks for the question. Hope that answered it, and uh, hope they'll work for whatever you're thinking about using them for. And as always, uh, like I said, uh, if you got any questions, you can uh, find me at oldgrouch.com. My contact info is there on the website, and hit me up there. I'll be glad to answer them. Thanks for the question, and as always, Jack, thanks for the show. Great stuff from Tim on the M67 heaters. They're, they're a thing that I think it belongs in your preps. I have one. Um, they There's nothing else really that does what they do the way that they do it as efficiently, as simply, and as absolutely guaranteed that it's going to work all the time, and, and that's why I love them. I want to point something out with uh, Tim, because Tim does so much on military vehicles and military surplus. I think might be he's a little bit typecast there. Tim is also a, a ham radio operator, kind of a, a master ham radio operator. So any of your questions on radios, uh, communications, even CBs, anything like that, these can also come in for Tim Glantz, member TSPC expert in the subject line for all of our expert panel members. And remember, you're only hearing 
hearing from about half the council today. To see the full council, get on over to the survivalpodcast.com and check out the Meet the Expert Council members page. Uh, next up, uh, last question for a council member, and I've got my ending segment on schools that's going to blow your brains out. A little something totally different. First, from Darby Simpson about how we find and hire and manage help on our farms if we have farms for profit. Darby, what say you on this? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer a question from Jim about how we go about finding good labor to help out with our farm. In addition, Jim was also wanting to know how we determine what to pay our help, um, you know, where we actually find those people. And also, since, you know, farm work is um, generally seasonal, um, you know, how we deal with that and if we have any year-round help. Um, and, and Jim, um, what, what I've done here, uh, by and large, is I've tried to set everything up so that it's a, uh, it's a one-man show. Um, I don't make any uh, uh, secrets about the fact that I'm very, very anti-employee. Um, government just makes it really difficult and really expensive to have employees. Um, and also, to have a full-time employee, we would have to increase production so much um, that personally, I just don't think it makes sense. So, um, you know, we've kind of gotten ourselves into a rhythm where, you know, we can produce enough, uh, for our family to live on with myself being 90% of the, 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 the labor quotient. Uh, and we're comfortable with that. Now that doesn't mean that we, we don't need help. We absolutely do need help. And without our help, it'd be really difficult to make this whole thing work. Um, so there are kind of like three different aspects that we need, we need help in. Um, the, the first aspect is kind of what I'd call, you know, spot jobs. So, you know, day in and day out, I can take care of everything myself. But when it comes to loading 500 chickens, for instance, well, that's not anything that I'm going to go do by myself. Uh, at least not do it by myself and be able to walk upright anytime, you know, in the following week. So, uh, generally speaking, we'll have two or three people that, that come over and, and kind of volunteer to help. Um, and this really, you know, typically is not paid labor, uh, although there have been a few times where I've had some contract laborers that will just come in and help, you know, young kids or whatever. And we just, we usually pay them like 10 bucks an hour for something like that. Um, and, you know, it's only about a two-hour job, so usually we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll actually pay them like 25, 30 bucks, make it worth their time to come out. Um, but generally, these are adults that are friends of ours, um, or, you know, in some cases, we've actually had customers that want to come help, and so we'll let them. And, and generally, you know, we'll just give them a bag of goodies out of the freezer um, that would be classified as a gift in kind uh, for them coming and, and helping us out with something like that. Now, another time where we need help, we're on like bigger jobs. So case in point, if I'm, you know, taking on a large carpentry project or if we're building, you know, high tensile fence or something like that, and I just go right to a contractor for things of that nature, uh, particularly with building fence, because these guys are set up with the specific tools and equipments that they can just go bust out high tensile fence like nobody's business. Uh, especially, you know, uh, they're set up to drill through these fiberglass posts we use and they're used to pulling the wire through the post and they've just got all the, 
the bits and blades and all that stuff that's required to work with fiberglass. So personally, I think that's money well spent. Um, there have been some smaller fencing jobs where I have, you know, uh, paid a buddy to help me out. And then we just 1099 him at the, uh, the end of the year. Um, but I, you know, another area we really need help and, and maybe a little bit more on point with what you're asking is, is at the, the farmer's market because the farmer's market is, is a huge, huge piece of how we do things here. It's about 60% of our annual sales. Um, what we look for when we're wanting help at the farmer's market is we're looking for customers who are like just totally in the tank and buy into what we're doing and understand why we're doing it. And they just kind of, you know, the, there, there's a few people that they, they, they are groupies, so to speak, but they've got a way with people. You can just tell that they've kind of got that marketing sales aspect to the personality and uh, we've had a number of people like this that have just become, you know, started out as customers and become good friends over the years. And they get approached and get asked to help at the farmer's markets. Um, or in one case, like, you know, set up and operate a buying club. And um, we oftentimes will just, you know, pay them a, a straight uh, hourly rate or, you know, maybe on like a commission basis or something like that. But you got to be careful hiring market help. Um, honestly, most of the time, if you just have, you know, paid market help, uh, it's not great. And I see this a lot with, with friends of mine who sell at the farmer's market and they're just, you know, paying some, you know, college kid 10, 12 bucks an hour to, to go out there and sit. And that person is uninvolved. They're staring at their smartphone, uh, sending text messages or reading emails or whatever and not engaging with customers. And that's absolutely what you don't want. And I know I had one friend, uh, who told me that just almost like clockwork, if he and his wife would go to the market, they, you know, would do like a thousand dollars. And then if they'd send their paid help the next week with the same product to the same market, they'd do like 500 bucks. I mean, it was almost always a 50% drop in sales. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we pay really careful attention to, um, so you just got to be careful about who you have to go and do that. I actually, you know, I was out of PB3 a couple of weeks ago and I, I actually spoke on, on marketing and, um, you know, cash flow and things of that nature. And I actually covered all that in great detail, um, about how we solicit that help and how we market at the farmer's market. And, um, uh, I got to tell you, if you didn't go to PB3, uh, here in the next, you know, month or two, the videos are going to be available and they're very worthwhile to to, to purchase and, and, um, learn about how we, we do all that. And I, I think that's probably where the, the number one area I see small farmers fail is in their paid market help. I mean, it's pretty easy to get good help on the farm at, you know, with projects and, and animal care and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, we, we have friends and customers that are like just willing to come and help and volunteer. They want to see the farm, uh, you know, a lot of them are happy to have permission to like, you know, get to go fishing in the pond or just take a walk through nature in the woods or, you know, uh, maybe take their kids squirrel hunting or something like that in exchange for helping us out. And, um, that's kind of how we do things. Um, we don't have any year round help. We're not that big of an operation. Um, you know, it, we've really just, uh, tried to set up all of our infrastructure and systems so that one guy can, can do most of the labor. So, 
anyway, that's how we tackle that problem, man. Um, I, I hope you find that helpful. If you've got a bigger operation, you're looking for full-time help. I'm probably not the best guy to ask, unfortunately. But uh, anyway, if I can be of a further assistance to you, feel free to shoot me an email, and I'll, I'll chat with you more about that. Uh, be happy to help you out if I can. Uh, for the rest of you, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do so by going out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. There are a ton of free blog articles out there on all kinds of things uh, related to production of pasture-based meats and marketing and equipment reviews and just anything you can think of. Um, for those of you that want to go deeper, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. Um, it is tailored to you, to your farm, to your operation, and whatever it is you want to accomplish on your farm. You can check that out if you'd like. If you're a TSP, MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on all consults. Uh, lastly, I wanted to mention that we're going to be hosting a workshop on our farm in June, and this is really going to be angled towards uh, homestead production of poultry, pork, and rabbit. Um, so we're going to have classroom segments. We're going to have on-farm segments where we're actually butchering all these animals. Uh, you can learn how to build a rabbit tractor and chicken tractors and killing cones for chickens and all kinds of stuff. It's going to be held on uh, June 10th and 11th, which is a Friday, Saturday. We do have a limited number of spots, but um, you can go out to the DarbySimpson.com and click on the tab that says our next workshop and you'll get to a general information page and then there's a link to the itinerary for the weekend. But we're trying to pack a ton of value into this thing for you guys. And what you're going to get is about eight hours of classroom time. You're going to get about eight hours of on-farm workshop time. And that's going to include about a, an hour and a half um, uh, farm walk and talk with myself. You get to see all these systems that we have in place and all these tools we use. Um, you're also going to get a spiral-bound notebook with a printout of all the presentations uh, that we, we cover uh, during the eight hours of classroom time with a lot of photos that you can you can take that home you can take notes in it reference it later it's going to be a, a great tool to uh, to to have uh, as you go home and try to do this stuff on your homestead um, also included will be uh, three meals for each of the two days that's all local organic uh, products I mean the food alone guys is worth a ton it's uh, uh, custom prepared by a local chef. Uh, it, in, it includes all of our, our meats that we raise here on the farm. Actually, we're going to be butchering a hog one day. That's going to be dinner one night. Uh, we're just we're going to have a lot of fun with this thing, guys. Um, and then, of course, I mean, this wouldn't be complete if we didn't have a barter blanket. And you, you're going to get to hang out with a bunch of like-minded people for a couple of days. Patrick Roman from MT Knives is going to be here. He's going to be doing a, a segment on how to sharpen uh, your knives and utensils and tools before you actually go out and butcher all this stuff. He'll also be helping in the poultry butchering that we do on farm. Um, uh, Rob Kaiser from Deliberate Living Systems will be here. Um, uh, Jesse Tetmeyer, who was at uh, uh, Perma Ethos for a long time, is going to be here. Um, and there's going to be a bunch of other guys here. It's going to be a great time. Go off to the website and check it out. The cost is only 375 bucks or 725 for a couple. Uh, if you got any questions, shoot me an email. I'll be happy to answer it. Jack, as always, thanks for kicking this question over to me. Everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care. Great, great stuff from Darby. Now, um, 
I, I def definitely recommend, especially if you're up in that area, that you consider getting out to this event. I think it'll be awesome. I think you'll meet some great people. I know every time people come here or the stuff we've done up in West Virginia, like I said, it's the relationships that form uh, between that, the food, the drink, and the camaraderie. It, all the education is just kind of a bonus. Um, I think I've had people come to a couple events that really didn't even care about what we were learning and still had a blast, and they just wanted to be there with the other people. Um, next up, I want to play something for you. Again, I've, I've, I've been saying lately that one of the things that we can actually do to help with the message of how bad the school system really has become is very simple. Stop calling them public schools and start calling them government schools. That's, that's what they are. They're not public schools. Um, I'm not a big fan of fast food, but yesterday my son and my grandson and my wife wanted to go out and get some stuff from the store, and they were hungry and they wanted to go to the restaurant. So we went to probably the best fast food restaurant out there, Chick-fil-A. And uh, that is a public restaurant. It's privately owned, but it's public. Anybody can go there. Anybody can do business there. There's no restrictions on who can do business there. It's it's public. Uh, Exxon, whether you like them, hate them, doesn't matter, and they're certainly in cahoots with government, but when it comes down to them as a company, they are a publicly traded company. Anybody can buy Exxon stock and hold it or sell it or trade it, get dividends from it, or choose to not purchase Exxon stock. They're a publicly traded company. That's public. That's what public means for the general public. Um, even though they use stolen money to create them, there are public parks that you can anybody can go to the park. Uh, there's some rules for the park, but basically anybody can go to the park, hang out at the park, play basketball. There's a basketball ring. People kind of figure things out themselves, too. It's not like, hey, you have to leave because you've been playing basketball too long. I want access to the, you know, or your car's been parked so long, you need to move your car. People just kind of sort of handle things themselves at public parks. It's a public place. The school system is not a public school system. You don't get to choose what school your, your child goes to, but at least, if nothing else, you can walk your child to school, right? You can walk down, if you live within less than a mile of school and you think it's not worth driving, you can walk to the school and pick your kids up. At least, even though they won't let you in the damn door anymore, you can wait for them outside and take them home, right? Well, not at one school in Houston, Texas, and I bet you're going to see more and more of this You want proof of what I say, that these are government, these are government indoctrination, minimum security detention facilities that hold your children captive for eight hours a day? Here you go. When it comes down to cracking down on parents, this Texas school talks the talk, but doesn't want anyone to walk the walk. Bear Branch Elementary School in Texas has banned parents from walking to school to pick up their kids. The school also doesn't want guardians to drive, park, and retrieve students. Now students can only go home via bus, or parents must wait in the car pickup line. The policy was put into place to ensure a safe dismissal procedure since the school is located on a busy five-lane highway. And while the idea of not walking to school seems ridiculous, the school's principal is dead serious about the rule. Local police are enforcing the rule and have threatened parents with criminal charges. But Jack, it's next to a busy four-lane highway. Okay, I don't give a shit. First of all, I would venture that most parents that would walk to this school to pick up their kids 
are not crossing the busy four-lane highway. Next, I'm going to tell you what I know about it. Busy four-lane highway is code for a busy road. It's not like a freaking interstate, guys. Okay? And... You know what's right outside of that school? I just know, you know what's outside of that school. The blinking lights that say you have to slow down to like friggin' 15 miles an hour and there's a school zone there. There's probably a cop right at the end of it writing tickets to anybody that picks it up a little bit too soon or happens to go through there when it's in force, but there's no kids and they don't see any kids. So, yeah. Okay, so all that's going on. And people are able to walk places all the time safely. And what this is actually saying is that these parents are not smart enough to be trusted with walking their children. And this is an exa- and and then so this principal sets this policy and immediately notifies the police because they, the principal knows that parents are going to be pissed off about this. And I want you to think about exactly the words used in the report. The police threatened the parents with criminal charges for noncompliance. What would I do? What would I do if this was my child's school? I would go door to door, and I would get every single parent that was within walking distance of this school, and on Monday morning, there'd be a hundred of us with our kids at the front door of the school with the kid's hand in our hand, saying, I dare you to do this. You better bring a couple paddy wagons for this. Do you really want to test this? That's what I would do. That's what I would do. If I had no other option. Because the biggest thing I would do is call the principal and say, I'd like you to know that as of right now, my child's beginning homeschooling, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it done. They won't be there Monday. I'm sorry. And this would, if, if this was my kid's school, this would push me to that immediately. Whatever it took, I'm done. You're telling me that I can't walk my child to school? I grew up when in elementary school we had kids that rode their bikes to school. I really, and they're not allowed to do that either, by the way. See, the government wants you to, to, to bike. Right? Because it's, it, 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 you know, it's less of a carbon footprint and all. But no, they want you to get on their big giant diesel school bus that lumbers around, you know, and takes 27 miles to take a kid five miles home because of their weird routes and stuff so that everybody can get on the bus. This is insanity. If you ever had a doubt when I said that their government schools managed as medium or minimum security detention facilities, well, now you have no argument. I noticed when I did this before, I said I would accept a debate moderated by a neutral third-party moderator managed under the international rules of debate, okay? And I would do it on a live streaming video with anybody who wanted to debate this with me. And I got people that told me I was wrong, but I didn't get anybody that told me they would step up to the debate, And I did get one guy that said he would, but I would be unfair. I'm like, how would it be unfair if we followed the international rules of debate and we had a neutral third-party moderator? You pick them. And I got no response because the answer was it wouldn't be fair because you picked the losing side of the debate to begin with. That's why it wouldn't be fair. You know, this is interesting to me. Uh, Today I also posted not only this on Facebook, I posted something else. And uh, it was about the irony and the hypocrisy 
that FDR, our president FDR, is considered one of the greatest presidents of all time, who brought us the Ponzi scheme that is Social Security, uh, and Bernie Madoff, who was sentenced to 150 years in prison for running a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, people got all upset, and Bernie Madoff was the guy, he got what he deserved, you know, FDR didn't enrich himself by this or whatever. And all, see, this is the problem with debate in America today. You point something out, and the response has nothing to do with what you've pointed out. No one said Bernie Madoff was a good guy that, you know, he shouldn't have went, you know, the guy died in prison, he wasn't there very long. But nobody said he shouldn't have gone to prison for what he did. Nobody said that he was, uh, he was a, a choir boy or something like that. Right? No one said that. What people said is the man was, was sentenced to prison and is hated for founding a Ponzi scheme. Here's an American president that's held up as, like, one of the greatest presidents of all time who was the founder of a Ponzi scheme. Now, an objection to this would be what? Social Security is not a Ponzi scheme because, and then you would list a series of facts that prove it not to be a Ponzi scheme. I'll tell you what. You want that debate? Anybody in America. Live streaming video, international rules of debate, neutral third-party moderator, debate subject. Is Social Security, under the definition of a Ponzi scheme, a Ponzi scheme? I will take that debate too. Of course, I get to take the contention that it is, because my contention is that it is a Ponzi scheme. Let's think, let's think about that one for a second, because it goes right in with education. See, we're not going to educate our children to this in schools. Maybe if we were at home, maybe they, we would be educating them to this. So what is a Ponzi scheme? Remember I said learn a financial term every day to increase your financial IQ? And you can go to Investopedia and get a newsletter that will tell you that. Well, in their little write-up, they have Ponzi scheme right on Investopedia. So I didn't make this up. Ponzi scheme is a fraudulent investing scam promising high rates of return with little risk to investors. The Ponzi scheme generates returns from older investors by acquiring new investors. The scam actually yields the promised returns to the earlier investors as long as there are more new investors. The schemes usually collapse onto themselves when the new investors stop. So let's examine this. Is, a pon is, is Social Security a fraudulent investing scam promising high rates of return? It is because it's not disclosed to the general public that Social Security costs you twice what you think it does. It costs you twice what you think it does. It's available, but it's, it's not disclosed. I mean, they don't ever talk about it, do they? I mean, you hear about it here. You, when you become self-employed, you find out about it. But whatever you're paying in Social Security, your employer matches it. Did you know that? Okay. So when you look at your rates of return on Social Security, they don't take into account the part that your employer put in. It's fraudulent in its rate of return. And it promises little risk to investors. Does Social Security promise little risk to investors? Y yeah, it does. And how much risk is there? Well, we know there's tremendous risk to Social Any honest economist will tell you right now that the long-term stability of Social Security is at risk. Okay, let's go on. It generates returns from, from old, for older investors by acquiring new investors. Is that how Social Security works? It is precisely how Social Security works. Your Social Security money today is being used to pay the Social Security of retirees. It's not their money coming back to them. I know in principle... Right? They paid in, they were promised. That's not what I'm talking about, morality. I'm talking about physical reality, okay? 
right? This is where the money comes from. Your money today goes to support somebody on Social Security today. And the only way that you're going to get Social Security is if there's enough people paying enough in to pay for yours in the future. It meets the definition perfectly. The scam yields the promised returns for earlier investors. So the first people that came into the, the Social Security system when it was first founded that were 30, 40 years old when they started paying it, they got a great return, and it's been diminishing against what's been put in ever since. But it still can keep going as long as there's more new investors. The schemes usually collapse on themselves when the new investors stop. So why hasn't it completely collapsed? Because of the use of force and coercion. So the only difference between Social Security and an actual like private Ponzi scheme is that the orchestrator, the ringleader, can actually make new people invest. Now, you want to debate that? Let's go. Government schools, you want to debate that? Let's go. I'd love to have this debate with somebody that can actually form a, cohe a coherent argument on the other side. I still think I would eviscerate you. But... It would, be, it would be interesting to have this debate with somebody that doesn't just go, well, that's stupid, or you're an idiot, or you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Because I've presented factual information. Schools are detention facilities. Let's see a kid try to leave a school and see what happens. Let's see a parent go up to a school and say, I want my child right now. Bring them to me and see what happens. See what happens. You're going to say it's not a detention facility? What happens when a child doesn't go to school? We call it what? Truancy. And in many places now, it's, a, it's being cited on the parents as a criminal offense. So prove it's not a detention facility. Don't just say that's preposterous, that's not true. Prove it. See, this is why I finished with this segment today. It's time for Americans to stop just accepting that something's the truth because they've been told it's the truth. I mean, seriously. How ridiculous is it that we just accept something because everybody says so? How can we possibly claim to be intelligent beings if we're doing this? So what do we do about it? Well, we do what I'm doing right now. I would like to challenge you to something else. Maybe once or twice a week instead of every day like the financial literacy challenge. Take something that you're absolutely sure is true a generalization of society, no matter what it is, and prove it to actually be true or prove it to be possibly true or prove it to be possibly false or prove it to be categorically false. Now, I didn't say, ask me what I think. I said, do it for yourself. Take a concept that everybody just accepts. Every child should go to college and make a logical argument for it. Don't parrot statistics. Make an argument. Make the objections. Debate yourself. This is how you critically think. You almost have to develop a tiny bit of a split personality. You Try to argue for the issue and then try to argue against the issue. And then really think about it deeply. Teach your kids to do this. Teach your kids to do this. Especially when they say, well, Billy said everybody is supposed to. Okay, let's logically argue what Billy said. Who is everybody? What does the word everybody mean? 
I'm really proud of my son yesterday because he says, uh, my grandson said something he shouldn't have, and it wasn't a bad word or anything. It was just used in a bad way. And, and my son said to him, you don't even know what that word means. You don't use words until you know what they mean. I was very proud of my son yesterday for that one. But when you have the kids saying to you, but everybody's supposed to. Well, what's everybody? Am I everybody? Is your grandma everybody? Is the neighbor everybody? Okay. So are all those people supposed to do this too? Okay, so now we've already determined the statement on itself is false. Because everybody, right? This is why I hate advertising. Everybody's talking about. No, they're not. Lots of people. So what did Billy mean when he said everybody? He meant everybody in, in my circle of influence right here that's going to be at this place or whatever. Okay? Now, that means you're just being made part of a group. What is the reason for doing it other than the fact that Billy said so? What is the reason for believing it other than the fact that the government said so? You see how those two actually are related to each other? Do, do you realize why this nation is so damn dumbed down and stupid at this point? Because somebody like me has to say this stuff? I mean, right now, honest to God, my wife and I are discussing how we possibly could homeschool our grandkids. Do that for our kids. Because we... We, I, I can't see having these wonderful children put through this indoctrination. I don't know that it's practical because of certain things right now and where they live and where we live. But I just, I mean, when I look at stuff like this, how in the hell do we get to a place where this is possible? Where a principal can tell a parent, you cannot walk to the front door of the school and get your child. Let me tell you something. When I was a kid in school... If, if you would have been a principal and told my old man this, and you had been a male, because my, my father would never raise a hand to a female, if you would have been a male, he would have drug you out of the school by your nostrils with two fingers up your nose and kicked your ass for having the audacity to tell him what he could do or not do with his son. Now let me tell you why, if it was done, my father would have never had to do it. There would have been a long line of men waiting to get to the son of a bitch, and that's why it would have never, ever, ever, ever infinity ever happened. It would have never, ever happened. Because they knew. Okay, first of all, because they had more brains. School administrators had more brains in the 80s and back than they have today. There's no doubt. But they also knew. You could only push a parent so far. And it hand your ass to you. Whether it was done... You know, above board, through the process of getting your ass fired, through the school board, or whether it was done, and I'm telling you, the men that grew up, the men that grew up in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, you tell them they can't come get their child on foot, they're going to put a foot dead in your ass. What happened? How do we become a nation of such freaking idiots and pussies? Seriously. I'll tell you how. The school system that's doing this today created people that are compliant and passive and obedient and just accept what they're told. There's all, I posted this on Facebook. We don't know the whole story. Yeah, we do know the whole story. The lady said or the guy said, I don't know if it's a male or female principal, that's the part I don't know, that you can't walk to the front door to get your kid. Well, maybe she has reasons. Don't give a shit what her reasons are. Don't care. My kid... 
I pay for you. I pay for the school. I pay for all this shit. I'm coming to get my kid. You're not telling me I can't. You're going to tell me I can't? You're going to threaten me with the state? Fine, my kid's out of your school. No more money for you for my kid. Because let me tell you, folks, this is the truth. This is why this has gotten to such a load of shit. All administrators see in attendance is, is dollar signs. Your kid's ass is in the seat for enough days a year and they get the money for them. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit about your kid. They don't give a shit about your kid. They really don't. If you think you do, they do, that's because you went to a school where they told you they did. Look at what's going on around you. Pay attention. What can we do about it? Well, in the words of one of our founders, and please remember, school is not education. School is school. Education is education. But this is from Thomas Jefferson. Educate and inform the whole mass of the people. They are the only sure reliance for the preservation of our liberty. That's the only solution. We need to start educating each other. We need to start educating ourselves. You realize the truth about where we are at as a society. We are a society of obedient slaves. That's what we are. We're obedient slaves. The fact that a person that's in a position of a principal of a school can do this and have a job in a week is proof that we're compliant, obedient slaves. The, the parents of the kids going to this school, either you get everybody together, you all walk the kids to school, or Monday morning you hear this sound. <laughs> Crickets. Not a kid in the school. Not one. Not a single one. What do you, see, and this is what people don't understand. Your strength is in your unity, not your division. We're so busy fighting over Trump or Sanders, Clinton or Cruz. They were weak as shit. We're weak as shit. So if half of them, or a ten of them, or fifteen of them do this, you know what they're going to do? They're going to crack down on them. You know when they can't crack down? When everybody does it. When everybody puts their shit aside and says, you know what, we all agree this is wrong, we're not standing for it. It's over like that. That's how powerful people are. But we're such weak asses. Because we're so worried about bullshit that doesn't matter that we can't fix the stuff that does matter. And until other people are willing to get on board with that, until other people are willing to unify, then you have to unify in your own way with other people that think like you, form collectives, form cooperatives. Do what you got to do. Get your kids out of these schools if you can. Don't think I'm saying anything bad about you if you can't. I'm a person telling you right now, honest to God, that my grandson is probably going to start government school in the fall. I'm not happy about it. I don't think it's logistically practical to get him to our house every day. I just don't, for now. Maybe I'll move. I don't know. We're looking for houses. We'll see. But I did it with my son. I don't think it was as bad then, but we put him in public school. So I'm not saying anything bad about you if you can't get your kids out of these schools. I'm saying if you can, get them out. Get them out. Get them out. Get them out. It's an outdated model. We don't need it anymore. With that... Let's uh, remind you real quick, if you like this show and the work I do, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. Remember, discount is on right now for the MSB. $25 for your first code discount, uh, first year discount code is PLANT, P-L-A-N-T. That does expire on Monday, so this is you're getting down to crunch time on this. There won't be another sale available for quite a long time on it. Discount code PL. 
A-N-T, for $25 for your first year of MSB. Support the show at 9.125 cents per episode is how the math works out. And you get so many discounts, it will more than pay for itself at that price, that's for sure. And you'll support the work we do. Another way to support the work we do, when you're going to shop on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com, and then do whatever you would normally do. You don't have to spend any extra money. And it's a shorter domain than Amazon.com, TSPAZ.com, TSP Business Directory, how to do business with other members of our community, TSPBiz.com, uh, or just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Business Directory. And our featured member of the Business Directory today is Agenda Printworks. They provide handmade custom screen printing and outdoor-inspired clothing. Jacob, the owner, is a TSP listener, has been running his business from home for 10 years. And go to Agenda Printworks for high-quality custom screen printing, and there'll be a link in the show notes. With that, time for our sh- our song of the day, and I promise you give you something kind of like a rock and roll song to kick off the uh, the weekend. And I decided to come up with what I think of as like this really cool song that's also one of the most messed up songs ever written. Um, believe it or not, many people don't know who actually wrote this song, though almost anybody that's familiar with music from the 70s would be. Um, this is song is actually written by Bruce Springsteen. So some of you that you know know the song and know the history of it are like, oh, I know what this song is now. And now it makes sense what he said. Uh, and some of you are like, Bruce Springsteen, uh, you're thinking born in the U.S. So no, no, he didn't actually record the song. He just wrote it. It was actually recorded and first released by Manford Mann's Earth Band. And it's called Blinded by the Light. And it's one of those songs that a lot of people know, but they don't know. And if you hear them singing it, they get like half the words wrong. And it's because the, the lyrics of this song is a mix of really cool, poignant, kind of poetic, allegory terms that actually mean something, especially to someone in the music business, and complete, total nonsense. I mean, really complete, total nonsense. And it's got everything that a totally rockin' 70s song could ever have. Ridiculously long guitar solos, uh, deep meaning and, and complete nonsense at the same time, and kind of moves around in time and tempo. It's from a time when I think a lot of people were, were smoking something when they were listening to music, and that's why the extremely long guitar solos were so well-received, because uh, people didn't really know how long they were going. But it's a great song. It's a fun song, and I hope it's a good start to your weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.